I read a, uh, a review of a, uh, of a book this week in uh, Christianity Today that explores an interesting topic, Christian faith in African slaves, early, early America, um, that they feel proves the power of the resurrection against oppression. Now, the authors of the book discuss what they call the the miracle of how many slaves came to Christ. And Jesus was, in their eyes, the white man's savior because he was written about in the same Bible that was used to justify their enslavement. But not all of these slaves obviously came to Christ, but, but many did. And so they asked the question, why did these enslaved people embrace the religion of their captors? And I thought this was interesting. The authors believe it is because they fell in love with the God of Scripture. And in Christ, they found salvation from their sins and they found reconciliation. The authors write that in the Bible, they found not just an otherworldly God who was offering spiritual blessings, but a here and now God who cared principally for the oppressed, acting to deliver the downtrodden from their abusers. And they found Jesus, a suffering Savior whose life and struggles paralleled their own struggles as slaves. And as they came in contact with this God, they found a different reality in him. They found the reality of resurrection power. It was the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection that caused or that created a community of faith and provided slaves with a theology of resistance. I just think that is so cool. Sisters and brothers, the truth of the resurrection and the truth of Jesus has been doing that for centuries for people in all kinds of circumstances. I believe that's what the resurrection does when the Holy Spirit takes the the miraculous truth of that event and drives it deep down into our hearts. Last week we, we ended with those words from the Apostles' Creed, the third day he rose again from the dead. Now remember those words of Paul to the believers in Corinth. If, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, Paul wrote, then those who believe he did should be pitied more than any people group in the world because that means our faith is futile. Our faith is for nothing. All the promises of God hinge on the truth of Jesus rising from the dead. And if he's still in that tomb, then we might as well do what Paul said the Corinthians should do, and that is just go ahead and eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, party it up, live any way you want, because if the dead, including including Jesus, are not raised, then what's the point? This is all there is. But he did come out of that tomb. And the scriptures do us the favor of recording multiple appearances to people after he did so. I think it is so cool that the the writers who record his resurrection include those to whom 
Jesus appeared. Why is that? Because, quite simply, it's difficult to believe that somebody rose from the dead. Have you ever seen someone rise from the dead? They hadn't either. And I think that's a big part of what motivated them to include names and and people and and places. Now, I don't want to spend too much time with this because we want to move to, to the next statement this morning. But I think... It's, uh, it's worth sharing with you. Justin Brierley, you might know the name I discovered it this week. He's the host of a UK-based apologetics radio show. It's called Unbelievable, with question mark. He has recently written a book by the same name, a compilation of many of the discussions that he's had as this radio talk show host for over 10 years. And he writes these words. Were the disciples just hallucinating that they saw the resurrected Jesus? You know, hallucinations do sometimes occur when people lose loved ones. The people most likely to experience a grief hallucination are senior adults grieving the loss of a spouse. Approximately 50% do, often believing they hear or sense the person with them. However, he says, only 7% of all senior adults grieving the loss of a loved one experience a visual hallucination of that person. It's also worth noting that people don't experience the same hallucinations. Most psychologists agree that mass hallucinations don't occur. In contrast, 100% of the disciples experienced what they believed were visual appearances of Jesus. And I would add, they were so convinced that they were willing to die for what they had seen. He goes on to say that's a far greater percentage than can be supported by hallucination research completed during this last century. Those who propose a hallucination theory also generally assume the disciples must have had a powerful psychological incentive to see Jesus come back to life. But that's not true. The disciples had no pre-existing expectation of a rising Messiah figure apart from the words of Jesus And those were confusing. Jesus' resurrection was unexpected and out of keeping with their Jewish theological expectations. The Gospels repeatedly mention the skepticism of the disciples. I just think that is so worth being reminded of. The Apostles' Creed affirms what is essential to believe for those who call themselves followers of Jesus. And his death as a fully human being, not imaginary, and his rising from the grave, not a hallucination, those are two of the essentials that we have found in the creed. His death and resurrection change everything. Okay, so let's put the next three statements on the screen. Can we have the the next slide, Vic? No, let's go. keep going. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. We have learned that the Apostles' Creed, though Trinitarian, is particularly Jesus-focused. It's interested in, in 
making truth statements about his coming to earth, his conception, his birth to the Virgin Mary, his suffering under Pontius Pilate, historical dating, crucifixion, death, burial, and going into the place where dead people go, the place of the dead. Because, why? The early church proclaimed the full humanity of Jesus. We've said this a lot, but I think it's so important that we read the creed and we understand the creed through that lens. On all of the statements about Jesus thus far that we've looked at in the creed are about his life on earth, a brief maybe 30-plus approximate years. Now, the next three statements that we have just read together, they capture what came next in time. And they're brief statements that are looking at a millennia of time so far. We're still in that, that place that we have just read together. So I want to invite you this morning, we're going to use a text from Philippians 2, probably won't surprise you when you read the, uh, the lines of the text. Let's go to, there we go, Philippians chapter 2. Let's stand together and read together. Paul is describing Jesus' descent to earth, and then he writes these words to the Philippians. Together? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Wow. My sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. God exalted him to the highest place. And then let's add to that what the writer of Hebrews says. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Those are probably the two most direct statements about where Jesus is and what he is doing at present. God exalted him to the highest place. Writer of Hebrews says, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God after he had gone through the crucifixion, endured the suffering of the cross and its scorn and its shame 
sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So turn to someone nearby and discuss that question with them. What is the truth that these two statements communicate to us? What, what do you think? What's jumping out at you when you read those two statements? See what your neighbor thinks. Okay. So, what do you think? What's your neighbor think? What's, what's jumping out? What, what are we to take away from these statements? What are they communicating to us? The highest place is God's place. I like that. Okay. Okay. He is God. He's one with God. Glorified. He rules and reigns. Okay. What else? That he sat down. Good. Yeah. The right hand is the place of power. Good, good, good. His humanity part was over. I'm not sure his humanity part was over. No, no. No, no. You weren't wrong. I'm going to speculate a bit when we get to the end of the sermon. But if we... And I could be a heretic. I mean, I, I've, you know, I've crossed that line a few times in my life. Did you get that? Because he's sitting at such a high position, he has the ability to be our intercessor. And, spoiler alert, I would link that to his humanity. Okay. Told his disciples it was coming. What else? God was pleased. Yeah. That seems to be what Paul is hinting at there. The exaltation based on, on what Jesus has, has done as the, the suffering servant. Anyone else? It makes us wrestle a bit, doesn't it, with the imagery? And yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you. Um, we're going we're gonna to try to unpack a little bit here and, and see if we can't make some sense of the imagery uh, that, that we're given in this text, and then I want to use one in Revelation. As we've done all along, I want us to hear the statements of the creed uh, through the, the eyes, ears, and see it through the eyes of, of those who were living in the early centuries of the Roman Empire. How, how would they have understood it? Well, no surprise, in ancient civilizations, the throne of a king, or in the case of Rome, the throne of a Caesar, was the highest seat in the land. It stood for the ultimate in power in that kingdom. And no one would dare sit on that throne. Not even for fun. The throne belonged to the king. And the throne was in, in, in many ways almost seen as inseparable from the power of the one who occupied that throne. I, I read this week that, and, and maybe you know this, that in the, in the British, the Canadians, and Canadian systems of, of parliament, there is a tradition that is followed every time a new session of government begins. 
It may be after an election when, this newly elect, when the newly elected party calls the parliament to meet for the first time. It may be after a summer recess when it's time for the parliament to get back to work. And at such time, the government prepares and the queen in England or governor general in Canada reads what is called the throne speech. Isn't that interesting? The throne speech, symbolic of an announcement coming from the highest power. It is a speech that outlines the plans that the government is determined to carry forward during the coming session. It doesn't give the final details of, of all the bills that will be dealt with, but it makes kind of broad sweeps and an outline. It exposes the direction that the government wants to set for the country in the coming months and years to come. Well, here's an announcement for you. The throne speech has been made from heaven. It's been given, and it declares victory over sin and death by the Son. And ultimately, every tongue of every creature, and it's interesting to, to read some of the commentaries on that, more than likely, they're talk, Paul is talking humans and those in the spirit world. He speaks of heaven and earth and under the earth. Everyone, every single person is going to confess and bow their knee to Jesus as Lord. And in case you were concerned, the plan of his government for the next term is already in place. It's the final term. It's called eternity. And the plan of that government is to rule over God's redeemed creation. <clears throat> Paul is, is pointing to a time in the future when God brings to fulfillment his plan for world history. And what happens in that plan has as its focal point his son, the savior and the redeemer and the judge of humanity and all living creatures. J.F. Packer likes to say that the message of the ascension story <clears throat> is this, Jesus the savior reigns. End of discussion. Jesus the Savior reigns. And so the creed says that he will judge the living and the dead. Those who are alive at his return and those who have died, all will gather before the victorious and conquering king. And that's why Paul says what he does about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Oftentimes, we will read that text from Philippians 2 and we'll end at verse 11, which is the exaltation of Jesus. But then Paul jumps right in in verse 12 and says, Therefore, 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 my, my brothers and sisters, be people who do everything without complaining or arguing. It's an exhortation that challenges us with this truth, I think. The way that we live our lives 
reflects to others, whether we realize it or not, what we think of the ruler of our lives. The way that we live our lives reflects what we think of the ruler of our lives. In the ancient world, the edict of the king, the edict of the Caesar, was non-negotiable. And citizens conformed their lives to the word of the king or the Caesar. And, and Paul is, is encouraging the Philippians and, and, and encouraging us, exhorting us to recognize that when we do everything without complaining and without arguing, we are demonstrating to the world who sees us, those who watch us, that we're followers of Jesus. Jesus did not complain about his circumstances. Remember, he was fully human. We've, we've, we've pounded on that. And so in his fully humanness, it had to be really hard to not complain about people and circumstances. Nor did Jesus spend his time arguing. Paul says, do everything without complaining or arguing. When we argue, what are we doing? We want to be right. Okay, I want to be right. Maybe you don't care. <clears throat> complaining and arguing. A couple of things that just kind of are part of our human condition. Sarah's challenge to remember that there are those who have far less than we do. And, you know, when we're not filling those new storage containers with our stuff, that's probably a good thing. To do everything without complaining or arguing. When God's people do not complain or argue, the message that we send about who rules our life, I think is a gorgeous and much-needed message to the world in which we live. It's motivation, Paul is saying, to live bright lives. You shine like stars in a dark universe. Motivation to live brightly. <clears throat> now, let's talk for a minute about the particulars about Jesus' destination. What I think is really cool about all of this is that Paul says, as Greg pointed out, God exalted him to the highest place. Now, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. <clears throat> now, remember, these are images that are describing things that none of us has experienced. And so you just kind of, you got to flex sometimes with, with some of the uncertainty. But we want to keep the big picture in mind. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Doesn't say, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say that he sat on the throne, <clears throat> excuse me, but he sat at the right hand of the one on the throne. This is ancient language. This is language that takes us back to the time when the kings 
or the chieftains of, of, of tribes would go to battle with their soldiers, their warriors. And as all warriors did, the king would carry a shield in his left hand and a sword in his right hand. And so he was fighting with his right, shielding with his left, which just by default made his right side a bit more vulnerable because he didn't have a shield protecting that side of his body. Are you with me? So what would he do? He would take his finest warrior and always make sure that that man was on his right side. Because he couldn't stand there with two shields. He had to fight with a sword. And so the man that he trusted completely, his finest warrior, was standing on his right side. Out of that custom, historians tell us, comes the idea of having the most trusted and honored advisor to the king sitting to the right hand of his throne. That's where we get the idea that the right hand was a position of power. It was the most trusted. It was the, most, it was, it was the person who was closest to the king. It was the person who had the ear of the king. Always. The one on the right hand spoke into the king's life and the king listened. And so to sit at the right hand of the king was obviously a sign of great favor and often a place of shared authority. The king was the king, but the advisor and the king could be very, very close. And the creed, I think, is affirming that Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, is recognizing that Jesus in human form came down and did the work, fought the battle for the king. Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet there is an intimacy and a oneness and a closeness that we wrestle with as we try to understand the Trinity that Jesus shares the Father's power and authority. So so once again, we're confronted with some of the mystery that, that is a part of understanding our triune God. We might think, but didn't Jesus share all of that as the eternal Son before he came to earth? And therefore... Paul says in Philippians that, that he, he gave up his rights. He emptied himself and came to earth. So when he ascended back into heaven, wasn't he just picking up where he left off? Well, I think yes and no. And this is where you might want to label me a heretic. I think This is a place, Mark, where the incarnation comes into play again. And where, Laura, I think that Jesus who ascended continues to be Jesus 
fully God and fully human. Okay. Don't light the fire yet. Last week, I mentioned the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1. Do you remember? The disciples stood staring into heaven. Two angels appeared. And do you remember the question they asked? Men of Galilee, why do you stand here staring into heaven? Well, the simple answer is because we've never seen anything like this in our lives. This is amazing. The Jesus that they knew and had spent time with, years with, had walked with, had talked with, had eaten with, they were close. They, they knew him as well as any human could has left them and has told them, oh, and by the way, don't worry because you're going to receive the gift from the Father and then you'll be my, my witnesses into the world. And so there was a lot at stake there in that moment. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here staring into the sky? And then the angels said this, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go in to heaven. When he returns, the angels are saying, you will recognize him. Well, how are they going to recognize him if he doesn't look like him who left? And I, I, think, I think it's okay to believe this because I think it's a, it's, it's a continued affirmation of Jesus' full humanity. Tell me again, what we have learned is the greatest concern of the Apostles' Creed? That he was fully human. It wasn't just an imagination. It wasn't just an appearance, but he was indeed fully human. And I am taken with the idea that Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully human, that walked the streets of Palestine is now walking the streets of heaven, wherever that is. Wherever that is. What do you think? Is it crazy? Okay, let me take you to Revelation chapter 4 for for just a couple of minutes. You remember, John is recounting his vision that was given to him when he was was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which is basically a, a Roman penal colony on an island. And we feel pretty confident that's where John died. He was there because he was a follower of Jesus. And he tells us and records for us this vision that he received when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And in chapter 4, he gives us a vision of the throne room. This gets a little foggy, but it's revelation, and it's cryptic, and it's apocalyptic language, and... It had to mean something to those who first heard it, and it means something to us, and there's just all kinds of of questions around that. You've probably noticed that I've never preached a sermon series in Revelation. There's reason for that. 
I think, I, I just don't think Revelation is a sermon series kind of a book. I think it's a Bible study kind of a book. I think it's, it's big pictures and, and large message is, is good for us as God's people. Uh, we've done the churches together of Revelation some years ago. But I'm still not convinced that we want to take time on a Sunday morning wrestling with the particulars, the, the dating and the timeline and the pre-trib and the post-trib and the ah-trib and the pre-mill and the post-mill and you get the picture. So here we are, chapter 4, John describes the throne room and he describes someone sitting on the throne, someone, he says, sitting on the throne, who had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Those were minerals in the first century. Those were minerals that, that were used in, in decorating and, and made things bright and made things pretty. They, they had a, a sheen and a brilliance to them. And then he also says that surrounding the throne was a rainbow. So let me ask you, who was on the throne? John is struggling to describe the presence of the one who sits on the throne in heaven because he just, he can't connect it with anything that he's ever seen before. Are you with me? Okay. So then in chapter 5, he describes a scroll in the right hand of the one on the throne. So in that chapter, now the one on the right hand, the one in the throne who is like the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and surrounded by this rainbow, has a hand in the vision and he's holding this scroll. And there's no one, we are told, found worthy to open the scroll. Symbolic, I believe, of world's history and, and how things in the world have played out according to God's plan. The one who holds the scroll has the plan and it's sealed. And John weeps and weeps because no one can open it. John is interested. He wants to know how things are going to play out. Hasn't gone real well so far. So he's hoping that maybe it's going to get better and he's sad because nobody can open this. But then one of the elders, part of the group who worships at the throne 24 hours a day, says to him, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. Oh, now there's something that John can relate to. Flesh and blood. Lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll. Oh, yes, says John. Finally. And then John says this. He saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain Standing on the center of the throne. But what about the one who's on the throne? Is he standing in his lap? Standing in the center of the throne. Did I mention this is apocalyptic and cryptic language? And we always approach it with care. And he came and took the scroll from the one who sat on the throne. So the lamb looking as if it had been slain, according to John, is standing on the center of the throne, and then all of a sudden 
he is approaching the throne and he takes the scroll from the one who's sitting on the throne. Are you confused yet? That's John's vision of the throne room of heaven, the highest place where God exists, the highest place where Jesus has been exalted to. He came and took the scroll from the the right hand. There's imagery there. Now, I don't want to make more of this than is reasonable because, because of the nature of Revelation. But I think John is clearly identifying for us, as clearly as Revelation gets, clearly identifying for us the person of Jesus. John is the one who um, records the announcement of John the Baptist when Jesus came to the River Jordan. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so now John in his elderly years is seeing one that looks like a lamb that has been slain. Standing in the center of the throne, there's, there's oneness with God, the presence of God, the, the divinity of Jesus, and yet separate from the one on the throne. And the one who at the, takes from the right hand the authority, the power to to deal with the world's history. It's a a picture there, I think, of one who rules. What do you think? Not too crazy? The creed makes so much of the humanity of Jesus that, that I really do think that this is reasonable. Now, think of what it must have done for the early Christians who suffered under the unjust rule of a Caesar to think of the one that they knew and had been with ruling from the throne room of heaven. I think we always need to be careful about the pictures and the portraits that we have of Jesus hanging around in our church churches and maybe in our homes. But I think it's okay to think of Jesus as a human because he was fully human. And we must think of him as God because he is fully God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The the one who ascended was the God-man And he sits at the right hand of the Father as the God-man. And he will return to judge the world as the God-man. Paul wrote to the church in Rome that it's Jesus who sits at God's right hand interceding for us. Now, here's what I want to leave you with. If Jesus the God-man in his full humanity and full divinity is sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. How precious 
is that? To know that someone who, like the writer of Hebrews has said, has experienced the same temptations that we have, and yet he was without sin, is interceding for us at the right hand of God in his human being. Isn't that amazing? In my mind, I have these conversations going on between the Son and the Father. Oh, yeah, Father, I know, they're a mess. But, but I was there, remember? I know what that mess is about. Yeah, Father, I know, I know. They, they give in to temptations that, that the Spirit lives in them to give them power to not give in to. But I understand those temptations. I faced them, Father. But I lived in the power of the Spirit as you want those on earth whom you love to live in the power of the Spirit. Father, I know, I know they shy away from, from pain and they, they dread the fact that, that they have to suffer and experience hard, hard things. But, but Father, remember, I was in the garden and I was facing the most horrible experience that I could face as a human being. And there were moments that I wasn't looking forward to it. Remember, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But again, in the power of your spirit, Father, I overcame. I love to think of Jesus, my fully human and fully divine Savior, interceding in those ways from the throne of God on my behalf as his follower. Praise team, come on up. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm always mindful of the things that I say on a Sunday morning, wanting them to line up with your word and with your truth and not causing us to to think wrong things. My prayer is that if there is truth and encouragement in these words this morning, that your spirit would bring them to mind in our lives. And what is not worth remembering, may we forget. Lord God, we are grateful for who you are, grateful for your creation, fatherhood, sonship, and presence of the Holy Spirit living in us to form and create in us an image and a presence in this world that is more and more like the one who is highly exalted. We thank you in his name. Amen.